Welcome to the latest edition of Spotlight, a PEI media podcast where we tackle the latest in private markets investing. I'm Adam Lay, news editor for Private Equity International and editor of Secondaries Investor. And I'm joined today by our guest, Andrew Seely, managing partner and CEO of Campbell Lutyens, a private capital advisory firm focusing on fund placement and secondaries advisory. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. And I'm also delighted to welcome my colleagues, uh, Toby Mitchell, Senior Editor of Private Equity International, and Jonathan Brass, a Senior Editor for Private Equity Real Estate. Hello, Adam. Um, thank you, everyone, for, for being here. Um, so in this edition of Spotlight, we're going to be talking about GP-led secondaries. Um, I was speaking to someone the other day who said to me that they read our headlines uh, about secondaries deals and all they see is GP-led this, GP-led that. Um, and they said, what, what is a GP-led process and, and why should I care about it? Um, so I think it's very fitting that we've got uh, Andrew Seely here today to elucidate uh, some of the, uh, uh, the definitions in the market and, and talk more about uh, why this is uh, important to not just private equity participants, but um, all private market uh, participants um, in alternatives. Um, we can start with some facts and figures. Um, GP-led secondaries are a growing part of the market. Um, last year, they accounted for roughly around 25% of the approximately $50 billion in secondaries trades. Uh, according to research from uh, Campbell Lutyens, uh, your firm, Andrew, um, 40% of buyers uh, surveyed this year said that they were going to spend uh, more time on GP-led transactions uh, due to increasing competition uh, for uh, LP um, secondaries. Um, and as opposed to, to LP secondaries, which are initiated by LPs, um, as the name suggests, GP-led secondaries are typically initiated by the general partner uh, who wants to restructure assets uh, or even uh, maybe restructure its LP base. Maybe, Andrew, you can correct me in a second if, uh, if I'm wrong. Um, the types of managers who are doing this has, has uh, changed immensely. Um, some of the names Warburg Pincus, EQT, Charterhouse. Thomas H. Lee, Nordic Capital, BC Partners, TPG, just some of the blue chip names who have run GP-led processes. Um, so with that sort of framing and context, uh, Andrew, um, can you give us a, a bit of a, a background as to the size of this market and, and why people should, should be paying more attention to it? Yes, thank you, Adam. This isn't an entirely new market. And in fact, we were doing transactions such as this back in the early 2000s, post the dot-com bubble, when there was a requirement to restructure or um, uh, uh, offer liquidity to NLPs in that, those portfolios of venture funds. Um, clearly, the financial crisis led to a material increase in this market, initially with GPs that were either challenged or underperformed and provided a solution and liquidity for LPs, but also maybe a future for those GPs as well. Um, the most recent development and really the uh, trigger for this particular growth, more recent growth in the, sec in the GP-led secondaries market has a move and an uh, embracement of this sector by the uh, higher quality managers, as you describe. And that's seen a, uh, an acceleration, as you say, last year, about 25% of the market. This year, 
over a third up or maybe 40% of the market could be GP-led transactions. Uh, probably read more from Europe than the US at the moment, or although, um, again, in proportion with the LP transactions, a uh, higher proportion in Europe than in the US. Um, may be partly that there's been less large LP sale transactions in Europe has maybe skewed those statistics. But we would say that, that mark, the market for GP-led transactions um, will, be up, will be up probably 50% this year. So Andrew, um, for an audience who maybe has heard about the secondaries market and um, maybe seen the name or the word GP-led deal here or there, but doesn't really have a concrete understanding of what it involves, are you able to sort of elucidate that for us? Yes. Uh, as you said earlier, GP-led transactions, as the name suggests, are transactions that are typically uh, initiated and managed by the GP rather than in uh, more traditional secondaries. It's the LP as the owner of those assets who initiates the transaction and manages it with an advisor. In the case of GP-led transactions, they're typically doing it for a number of different reasons and using a number of different structures, and therefore you have to break it down. It's not one single homogeneous type of transaction. Um, the types that people typically refer to now are continuation funds, mm -hmm. where the manager is seeking to uh, sell the assets and the underlying funds to a new fund, which will have maybe a longer life, maybe have more capital, and allow that manager to grow or to increase the value of that portfolio. Uh, a, a, a derivative of those particular transactions is a more recent phenomenon where people are doing single asset continuation funds, i.e. selling the last asset in fund or one particular asset in the fund which needs more time or more money to develop. And, and, and those, both those uh, transactions, um, they involve the, the moving of assets from the original vehicle into a newly created vehicle. And who backs that, that new vehicle? Uh, those funds are typically backed by the more traditional secondary market who are looking to own those assets and interested over the next part of the, the life cycle. Um, Typically, in these type of transactions, or almost inevitably existing investors, are offered the opportunity to either roll their position into the new funds or to take cash off the table. Okay. Um, are there any other sort of types of GP-led transactions that we should be thinking about? A similar one to that is, again, move where assets are transferred is a strip sale, where a proportion of the assets are sold into a new vehicle, which may be a way to de-risk the existing portfolio, maybe to uh, uh, allow for more capital to be uh, deployed in those particular assets. So those type are the ones where you're moving assets typically into a new fund. In addition to that, there are other types of, again, more corporate finance solutions involving preference equity or, um, in case, case, debt as a way to fund those underlying funds and bringing increasing sophistication to the structure of the vehicles. The other and quite distinct type of GP-led secondaries transaction, which has been, uh, you've referred to some of those transactions, such as BC Partners, are where you're effectively providing a liquidity option for existing limited partners in a structured manner. So typically referred to as tender offers or LP liquidity options. These are quite different because it's not actually changing the uh, structure of a fund or ownership, and it's 
entirely optional for LPs. So if they do nothing, they retain their position and probably are un totally unaffected. For the GP, they may be doing it for uh, to um, help in the through a staple transaction and the raising of subsequent funds. It's maybe to more actively manage their their existing investor base. It's maybe providing a service to LPs to give them an option of early liquidity. So there are lots of different types of GP-led deals, as, you, as you've just outlined, and you mentioned BC Partners, um, that deal, I believe, that closed um, last year, I think, um, more than $1 billion uh, in LP stakes uh, traded. So these things can be very, very large. Um, I'd like to bring in uh, Jonathan Brass. Um, John, Jonathan, what types of GP-led deals are you seeing in the private uh, equity real estate market? And, and do they differ from the types of deals that, um, that Andrew has just uh, discussed? Um, yeah, thanks, Adam. And, and Andrew, that was absolutely fascinating because I'm, I'm getting a sense of a marketplace that is, is clearly quite sophisticated. Um, I mean, from the coverage that PERE has run on this aspect of secondary trading, um, it would seem that we are at a far... Uh, more nascent place in terms of the types of GP-led um, transactions that are happening. Um, certainly, um, you know the, sort of the myriad of, of different deal types that you referred to, Andrew, there, uh, we're not quite seeing it to that level of sophistication yet. But I would say um, that could well be a story for tomorrow, as the data, the research that is currently available is saying to us that these types of transactions, these um, GP-led or tail-end fund um, uh, transactions are, in, are are increasing. Landmark, for instance, uh, one of the prominent players in the space, um, reported in its most recent um, uh, deal volume research that there is a strong desire from fund sponsors looking to recapitalise mature funds uh, and partnerships that have exceeded. Um, and uh, and that should that should come through in in the numbers uh, over the years to come. Similarly, um, Green Hills in their secondary market trends and outlook report have talked about when they when when they when they look into the different asset classes in real estate, they're saying they specifically have seen an increase in sale of both tail end real estate portfolios um, uh, in, in in the space too. So I, I expect us to be talking about this a lot more. Anecdotally. Um, I mentioned Landmark, the other major player in the secondary space for real estate partners group. Um, you know, they've just raised two billion for their latest fund, and they told me that um, of the transactions they've done to date, around 15 or so, um, a good 90% are GP-led restructuring deals. Um, and so you get a, a real sense of where the deal flow in in, in the space is, is going. Certainly, this is certainly this is an area that's not confined to private equity. And these uh, techniques are, are applicable in private equity. We've particularly seen this in the area of infrastructure. And arguably, there's a better case for it in infrastructure than anything. These are long-dated assets, which typically are structured through uh, private equity-style funds, uh, 10 plus 2-year funds. So 
we've seen uh, a number of transactions and probably about a half our deal volume has been in the infrastructure sec uh, sector. And that includes both the continuation type funds, again, particularly applicable where you've got long dated assets, maybe even greenfield assets, which could have a total duration of 25 to 30 years. So at the end of that 10 year life fund, there is logic to uh, um, offer institutional investors the opportunity of holding those assets over the, the brownfield stage of the life of those funds. An early transaction we did in that area was with Infrared. And again, they had gone through the developmental stage and received the developmental returns during the first nine years of the life of the fund. But the underlying concessions still had stretched out 20 to 30 years. So to offer investors the opportunity to hold those assets for longer was appealing. Now, not all different investors want to own assets at a different stage of the risk return cycle. And therefore, typically you would see a different type of investor finding it appealing to own those assets over a 20-year life with, tip with typically materially lower returns, but with that lower risk. I've got to ask, actually, the, the instigation of, of these types of transactions, are they foreseen at the beginning of a fund? I mean, is, is a strategy for a piece of infrastructure, infrastructure like that possibly a two-tier thing where the initial fund has a certain strategy, but it makes a lot of sense then to uh, reimagine another, ve another vehicle for a next, uh, next period of uh, an asset's life? Or, is, or are we also looking at, at the possibility that initial underwritings haven't quite gone to plan, the, the strategy has taken more time than originally envisaged, and as a result, this is a resort one goes to. Um, I think a little bit of both. I think the um, there were clearly funds that were raised uh, which hadn't uh, sort of forecast exactly the outcome at the end of the life of the fund. Uh, to some extent, the early development of the infrastructure market people took the model that had been used for private equity that was acceptable to the institutional market. And although not maybe perfect for infrastructure, that was the, um, the, the path of least resistance to raising capital. So in some cases, uh, they did envisage what would happen, and there are a few funds which had uh, a provision to allow that to transfer into another fund. In some cases, in a transaction we worked on recently, there was, an there was a vote at the end of the life of the fund to extend for another 10 years, um, uh, but with a liquidity offering at that stage. Mm -hmm. So yes, there was some thought, but not as thought as the, much thought as there should be. And I think in the next generation of funds and the funds that we're raising on our primary side now, there is more thought being put into them. So, so that sort of a next vehicle could be weaved into the initial documentation for a vehicle? Or at least the mechanism put in place to facilitate that. Alternatively, there are currently, as you're aware, longer, people are raising longer term funds. And with those longer term funds, there is uh, probably a greater desire or um, a logic to have liquidity windows or um, a set process of how a GP will offer LPs liquidity, maybe by way of some uh, by way of a tender offer. Is, is that sort of foresight being included in any private equity fund documentation at the moment as well, or is that really for infra where? It's, yes, it's, it's probably over time. Um, infrastructure has had typically longer life funds, and we've been raising funds as long as 25 years at the primary stage. Um, I think as we are raising those, now institutions are looking for and GPs are seeking to offer those liquidity windows. I think in private equity, clearly there's been a recent developments toward longer term funds and longer term strategies. And in those cases, I think we would expect to see 
uh, those managers putting in some form of liquidity windows or at least giving some option to investors, uh, 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 which I think will make it easier for them to raise those longer data funds. Mm. I'm, I'm just thinking if, so at the moment, it feels like there's a lot of innovation going on, um, a lot of work for people like Campbell Lutchens in terms of working out how these deals should best be kind of structured and, and, and processes run. Uh, I wonder if in five or ten years' time, it'll be so natural to the market that it'll just kind of happen. Something will be triggered at ten years or twelve years. Well, clearly we hope so. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll require a lot of uh, advisory work by Campbell Lutchens. Absolutely. I mean, anecdotally, we, we are... Um, <clears throat> hearing from legal professionals um, that we speak to in the market that um, they are starting to see um, sort of secondaries uh, terminology and technology built into uh, LPAs, not on the vast majority of the funds uh, that they are, they are forming, but, but they're starting to creep in, and particularly in infrastructure vehicles, I believe. Um, uh, Macquarie's um, latest um, uh, infrastructure fund, I, I forget the name of it, has an inbuilt uh, secondaries process that kicks in at the 10-year mark and then LPs are allowed to elect to sell their stakes um, in a, a GP-led um, sales process. That's really interesting. I, I suppose that speaks to just a higher um, level of understanding now about real hard assets that actually original business plans can sometimes be outlived by the needs of the, of the un underlying asset. Um, and so those mechanisms must be in place to enable the manager to continue um, executing on a strategy, even beyond the, the life of the original vehicle. I, I get the sense that maybe the language of the LPA provides for some sort of event, but it's not too prescriptive, just because there's no way of knowing what the secondary market will look like in... 10 years' time or 12 years' time. Yeah, and of course, it takes a long time to bring about that this type of change. And it's only, it's only if it's going into documents and new LPAs now, it'll only impact that market in 10 years' time. Um, you've started to see, and people often say, do has documentation changed in LPAs? Clearly, the consent rights for transfers in more traditional secondaries has developed over the years as GPs seek more, have sought more control over the transfer of interest in their portfolio, of their LP, uh, LP interests. We recently, um, it's not been published yet, so this is kind of a sneak preview, but we recently ran our LP perspectives survey, which asks, um, I think it's over 100 institutional investors broad range of questions about private markets and we stuck a couple of questions in about fund restructuring this time um, and some of the results so 57% of the people we asked had been asked to or party to a fund restructuring um, so now the majority of LPs have, have, have kind of been involved in one of these processes um, most of them thought they did have enough time and enough information to make an informed decision um, mm -hmm. It's, uh, it was around 60% in terms of uh, how many felt they had. Um, and I guess we can uh, argue whether the 30% who felt that it was there wasn't enough information or there wasn't enough time, how important is that? Should we be worried about that? Um, I suppose the key, key consideration here is do these investors who are being uh, propositioned like this feel they're going to get best value from the assets they own? And will that process enable that to happen? The, the inherent conflict, uh, and it's certainly one to manage, and it's certainly one that um, is is discussed in, in real estate circles, um, you know, is if the manager is going to continue benefiting from uh, running the subsequent vehicle, 
have they run a fair um, process, an auction here? And very interestingly, um, uh, and again, anecdotally, uh, you know, we've come across a few scenarios where investment managers who were looking at tail end funds as a source of deal flow have felt that they were uh, somehow at a disadvantage to those groups who had secondaries platforms because who would bid on the same assets. And this is because the secondaries buyer would 90 to 100% of the time retain the manager, whereas the investment manager, the direct buyer, would obviously be a replacement manager uh, of those assets. Mm. And as a result, the suspicion at least is that they had an unfair place in the, in, in the auction room. If that's the case, then investors in the existing vehicle could quite legitimately be asking, um, are, are we going to get best value? Here are a bunch of bids. Some of them will replace you as manager, others won't. Um, how are you determining where best value lies? Andrew, is there a sort of optimum number of kind of final round bidders in, in, a, in a process like this? Where you can say to LPs, here's the price that is has been selected on the table. Um, it's been sufficiently kind of market tested to so that you can get comfortable with it as being the best price available. I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think that these processes are typically run um, in an open and transparent way, with a price with price maximizing be, uh, mm. maximization being a key goal of them. Um, as you've seen, and they've been some quite public numbers floated around. I think the pricing that has been achieved on some of these transactions, particularly with higher quality managers, has been very good and attractive. But what you're doing here is you're creating both the opportunity for investors, and you're trying to solve for the differing. Um, uh, D d differing desires of different types of investors. And if you have 100 investors in a fund, clearly some would like to hold assets longer, some would like to cash in and realise those investments. So you're trying to create a transaction which actually solves for the requirements of a number of different types of investors. And I think that's the challenge. But that's where these these type of structures actually can be a best fit rather than the alternative, which is maybe the more natural alternative, is where you just sell the assets uh, to a third party. But then there's no option for the existing investors to continue that ownership. Mm -hmm. And and one uh, bone of contention that we um, often report on is the the question of um, a genuine status quo option, um, which correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Andrew, but I take it to mean that um, LPs in an original vehicle essentially um, keep the same terms um, and and have essentially nothing changed to their stake in a limited partnership. Is is that? Is that the best way to think about it? Uh, broadly, yes. Um, in the case of tender offers, clearly they don't have to accept, so there's a true status quo, quo option for them. In the case of where assets are transferred, and there's a different, there will be a different strategy for those assets, typically holding those assets for longer, seeking to grow them, you can't offer exactly the same as they would have otherwise. So the terms are changing, but it's, a, it's critical to offer as close as possible to a uh, a status quo option so that investors who want to can continue to own those assets, albeit maybe with a longer term strategy. Uh, that the terms, the economic terms in terms of management and carry, are as closely aligned to what they had before. Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, one's trying to create that and we're trying to um, structure transactions so you're not forcing investors to do things. But clearly, if there is that different strategy, you are 
making them make a choice. One of the cha- and what this is one of the challenges that LPs typically have is that they've invested in this fund relying on the manager to make decisions for them about when's the right time to sell and, and what to do with those assets. And in these transactions, that is less clear cut because the GP is going to continue to manage them afterwards. And some LPs don't have the resources or the time or in sometimes experience in some cases the experience to be able to make those decisions and therefore do feel uncomfortable with these transactions. But it is it's a be- these are trying to be best fit for the most number of investors possible. It must be quite frustrating for for the advisor or for um, a potential secondary buyer um, if you want a deal to um, to complete and to, and to close, and you perhaps want uh, you have a threshold uh, for the minimum number of, of LPs that you need to sell in order for the deal to close. Um, to then have to offer an option to say, actually, this is a third option, and and you don't have to to participate in 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 either selling or or rolling o- over into a new vehicle. How do you how do you deal with that as, as again an different types different types of transaction? Uh, in the case of the LP transaction, uh, an LP tender, you do not know how many people will sell. So for the buyer, it's a little uncertain the volume they're going to do. So in some of the large ones where people have underwritten transactions up to two billion or more in size, and then get only a few hundred million, it can be quite disappointing. In the case of a GP-led uh, continuation fund, clearly you're transferring the assets, but again, you don't know how many of the existing LPs will opt to roll over. So you don't, you're not certain about the. Size. I don't know whether it's on our agenda or not, but I don't think we can have a discussion about GP-LEDs without talking about staples. Um, because again, we've seen, it, maybe it's anecdotally, I don't know whether we've got the data to back it up, but but more instances of this being part of the, the transaction and, and not just to raise fund two to fund three, but fund two to fund different strategy, different asset class. Um, very briefly, there is some data actually um, just released from Hamilton Lane um, last week that we reported on. Um, for uh, all the GP-led restructurings that they reviewed uh, in 2017, I believe, 27% of those uh, included a stapled element. Mm. I think the, the staple um, is an important part of it for certain types of transactions. So in the case of GP uh, ten, t- tender offers, uh, staples into other funds are a common theme. Uh, that's possible because effectively it's a pure option for the LPs if to sell, which means that there is, they're not being forced to, and therefore uh, that reduces the conflict. Or, or, or um, In the case of uh, continuation funds, some of the early transactions did have staples. I think that there that goes against the concept of a status quo. And I think if GPs are being forced to put up new capital, that is uh, controversial. Mm. So we've been hearing about staples that are not formalised, documented staples, but essentially relationship gigs where the buyer in a fund restructuring will also happen to be committing a certain amount to GP's next fund. There's no kind of straight line between that and or the, 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 the secondary's acquisition and the, and the primary commitment. Um, but again, there's, it raises questions about conflicts and, 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 and how transparent the 
process of finding a buyer in the secondaries deal has to be um, in order to, to, to demonstrate that LPs are being offered the best price. Um, but Jonathan, we've had a lengthy discussion about this because I feel there's an inherent conflict there. Well, um, absolutely. I mean, what we just talked about, um, you know, I mentioned with certain uh, investment managers feeling they're at a disadvantage in the auction place against the secondaries buyer, they're never going to be in a position to be able to fulfill a staple uh, arrangement. So again, if that ultimately transpires, I suppose um, you're you know, absolutely asking about conflicts there. Uh, and I guess it comes down to, again, something we've discussed previously about what is the fiduciary duty of the general partner? Is it to make sure they're offering the best or or make sure they're facilitating the offer of the best price on a, a fund stake or, or, or a set of assets? Um, or is it just to continue to generate the return on that fund on those assets Very tricky, and, and stay in, in business essentially? Yeah. What does best value look like? Is it fulfilling the initial pledge of a vehicle or can it morph over time in terms of prolonging income for investors by pulling them into another vehicle? You know, you enter the realm of debate there, mm. and and one that's hard to document as well. Yeah. Well, clearly it must be transparent to existing LPs what's being what's been done. Uh, clearly, it's important that one does have a a, a, a third party advisor advising and ensuring that in pricing is being maximised. So it is important, and I think, as I said, different in different types of transaction between uh, tender offers and continuation funds. And I said, we, we see less staples uh, in continuation funds where there, is a con- where there would be a conflict. Mm. And, and then is it open in terms of, let's think about a, a, a tender offer with a staple for, a, uh, for the next fund. Mm-hmm. Are, should LPs be perfectly happy that because there's a status quo option, they don't have to accept anything. It, it really actually doesn't matter whether they're being offered the best price. If they're being offered a price that they like, they can take it. And if they're not, then they can ignore it. Um, is that how they should view the situation? I think uh, broadly that they are. it's a choice they're being offered. It's a free option for them to accept or not to accept. Um, the staple should not necessarily be dilutive to the pricing they achieve, and in some cases can actually be accretive. Really? Accretive? Yeah. Because, again, I feel like logically the staple must have some sort of dilutive effect on the final price because it, it must exclude some people from the process if it clearly that is wholly dependent on the quality of the manager mm-hmm. and to exaggerate if it's a manager which you couldn't otherwise get into as a primary that may be an, that may be an entry point for you but the real reason why somebody could uh, could potentially pay more for it is it may create more diversification across vintages uh, it may split between fund between funds by a number of assets. Um, as we get to, to towards the end of the conversation, one interesting data point that I saw actually from your research, um, Andrew, um, from your report, um, it, it noted that the average size of the GP led deal in 2017 was 63 million dollars. 
um, strikes me as a, a little smaller than uh, the sort of headline uh, blue chip um, GP led deals that we're we're writing about. And and but on the other hand, strikes me that um, these deals are are not just. Um, uh, for the large uh, multi-billion-dollar uh, GPs, They're, they can also be ven- beneficial to to mid-size and even um, smaller players. Clearly, there's a lot more press around the larger transactions, but yes, there are quite a number of smaller deals that are being done. We just don't write about them as much as we we should. <laughs> Maybe they get less attention. <laughs> is that a function of just you know, as you said, typically the the transactions that are sorry that the assets that are transferring from one vehicle to another are at the tail end of a of a fund most of the the, the main business has already been conducted and these are this is what is left over effectively and it's how to best position that and so by virtue of that it's likely not to be a, a large dollar but one we'll has to remember and we're talking mostly about these gp led transactions but do remember that lps have an increasing appetite to hold assets for longer and having capital deployed uh, and at work for longer so these can be very appealing to lps and again particularly in the infrastructure market but also increasingly on the private equity market i think you you hit the nail on the head there Andrew. i mean the um and that's absolutely the case in real estate too where there is a a increasing concern over being able to deploy to strategy. So a lot of money is committed to funds and a lot of fund money hasn't been committed to the market because the basis in which it's been raised um, is hard to, um, it's been hard to meet with the, the deal flow available to managers. That's not lost on certain investors, particularly those who don't have the ability necessarily to manage things directly themselves. Um, would, they would rather roll over assets to keep their allocations up to keep their exposures live versus see the money back necessarily and have the challenge of redeploying. So done in the right way, these transactions have the ability to be win-win-wins, wins for the existing investors, providing them an opportunity to exit at a, an attractive price or the opportunity to hold those assets for longer, wins for the GP who can uh, uh, continue to manage those assets for a longer period of time and potentially create greater value, and potentially opportunities and wins for new LPs or secondary buyers to deploy a significant amount of capital in an, on an attractive risk-adjusted basis. I think for these deals to work well, there must be a, a robust rationale for the transaction where all stakes, stakeholders um, are advantaged. I think the conflicts have to be managed. One has to offer, as you said earlier, a true status quo, close, as close as possible to a status quo option for existing investors. I think you have to demonstrate due process and price discovery. Uh, to make people feel comfortable. I think you have to ensure the equivalence of information between existing and new investors. And in some cases, you need a fairness opinion to give comfort to those investors that you have achieved best value for them. But transparency is key in the whole uh, to, to make sure these work well. Andrew, is an advisor always needed? Um, the, I would say in the a very leading su- question. A leading question, <laughs> indeed. Um, I, I, I'm glad to say, in almost all, uh, in, in almost all transactions, there are, an advisor is used. Uh, there have been the odd transaction that doesn't, but I think it's important. There's one there 
complex transactions. They're very specialised, multi-asset, multi-party de deals. They have particular features to them. There are potential conflicts. I think it's important that the L it gives comfort to the LPs to see that an advisor has run a process and, and ensured true price discovery. Um, so thankfully, yes, it's an important part of the transaction. Great. Um, to, to wrap up, um, Andrew, can, can I ask you um, how you see this market evolving? Um, what are we going to be writing about um, at PEI uh, in the secondary space uh, in the weeks and months um, to come? I hope this will continue to become a more established and larger part of the market as better quality managers use the secondaries market in a creative way. I think the secondaries market has become a huge part of the overall private equity infrastructure and increasingly real estate market. And I think by further innovation, it'll maintain its seat at the table. Um, particular areas that may develop, as said, across asset classes, we're seeing uh, opportunities that go beyond infrastructure, real estate, private equity, into asset classes in energy and real in aircraft leasing in uh, shipping. Uh, so I think the market can extend that way. I think there'll be more creative uses of this type of funding as we're seeing single asset deals, more pref equity structures. Um, I think a large part of the development of the market will will be dependent on where we are in the cycle. Mm. And will we see the likes of Blackstone and Carlisle uh, doing GP-led processes? I would expect so. Food for thought. Well, with that, uh, I'd like to thank uh, our guest, Andrew Seeley from Campbell Lutchins, uh, as well as Toby Mitchell and uh, Jonathan Brass. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.